All right, good morning, everyone. So we're going to be continuing on with Amos this morning. I think we're going to be finishing it up. Fingers crossed on that one. We've got two chapters left, and that's kind of been the pace for a little bit. So we'll see, but if not, that's great. If we do get done, that's great. Next week, or possibly even this week, depending on the timing, we'll move on to Obadiah. And Obadiah is only one chapter, so that's going to be probably half a lesson. And then we're going to skip over Jonah. Again, we're not hitting all the minor prophets, just kind of hitting the ones that we may not have read or paid much attention to. I think we all know Jonah pretty well. So we're going to skip over that and then move on to Micah following there. So that's kind of the game plan for the next couple months here, what we'll be doing. But before any of this, we'll begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we're picking up in chapter 8, and if you'll recall from last week, we're within those five visions that the Lord gives to Amos, the first of which was the locusts, the second was the fire, the third, the plumb line, where the Lord started to ask him, Amos, what do you see? Amos responds, a plumb line. Good job, Amos. Then we got a little bit of a break there with Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. He goes to the king and tries to get Amos in trouble and says, Hey, Amos has been saying all this stuff when in fact he's twisting Amos' words. And then he wants Amos to go back to his land to never again prophesy here. And Amos is saying, you know, not a prophet nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman and dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord sent me here. So pretty much, hey, I didn't even want to do this, but the Lord called me to say this to you, and I'm saying it, so that's that. So he doesn't really care about the opinions or the thoughts of anyone else. And so kind of a good good model for that, especially coming up on Reformation Sunday with Martin Luther taking the stand of here I stand, I can do no other, you know, God help me. And so we get a little bit of that in Amos here. But we're in the fourth vision, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. He said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. So here's kind of the climax of the book of the end has come. He's been preaching of all this coming judgment, but finally the end has come. And so why the summer fruit? It's kind of an odd imagery. I mean, we get the fire, we get the locusts, even the plumb line is a bit of a stretch, but you can make it work of a plumb line making something straight. And so the crooked people of Israel, the Lord making them straight. But then all of a sudden here, a basket of summer fruit. So the basket of summer fruit, it's ripe, it's ready for harvest. And so it's either good or it's going to be bad. 
a bad harvest. It could be a time of decay, because once the fruit is ripe, it'll quickly decay from there. We also hit on briefly last week, kind of the word play going on here of summer fruit is kayitz in Hebrew, and then the word for end is kites. And so it's kind of the similar sounding there. And so a little bit of a word play that just kind of gets lost in the English here. And that the end has come upon my people Israel. It's time for the harvest. The harvest is here. You know, the figs on the tree, they haven't matured. Remember in Mark, we had that imagery of the fig tree not bearing the fruit. So we have that same type of imagery going on here. So the end has come. I will never again pass by them. We saw that back in 7 verse 8 in the third vision of the plumb line. The Lord saying, I will never again pass by them. We saw that in verse 13 of chapter 7 when Amaziah said to Amos, never again prophesy. So he's getting his wish here. He says, never again. We don't want you to prophesy in our land anymore. And so the Lord is granting that wish of, okay, I won't prophesy. We'll see later on in verse 3 that there will be silence instead. So how devastating that is, the silence instead of the prophecy of the Lord. So verse 3, the songs of the temple shall become wailing in that day, declares the Lord. So normally the time of the harvest is a great time of rejoicing. We get food, we get income from the harvest. So time that would be a time for rejoicing is now a time for wailing. Even the songs of the temple will not be singing praises to God for a bountiful harvest, but rather songs of wailing, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, he says, or they are singing. They are thrown everywhere, silence. So we have all this, these dead bodies just everywhere. There's nowhere even to bury them. They're just strewn about here. They're thrown everywhere, nowhere to bury them. And then silence. We saw that back in chapter 6. Remember with the people going into the house of, there's all these dead bodies. Is there anyone here? No, there's no one left. He says, you know, silence. Don't call on the name of the Lord. Don't call out to him. He's brought this wrath upon us. So now here, with all the dead bodies are thrown everywhere, silence. There is no more prophecy from the Lord. There is no more songs of rejoicing to the Lord for what he has done, but rather silence. Silence from the Lord and silence from us for the judgment that he has inflicted upon us, upon these wicked people that have turned away from the Lord. Are there any thoughts, contemplations on that before we move on? Can be kind of, he kind of switches gears a little bit in verses 4 through 6. Mm-hmm. Just the form of it. Um, I guess the idea is these are the first so many dead bodies they are thrown everywhere. Like they would be wailing that out, and then mm-hmm. they would also be wailing silence, or, or the Lord Himself would say silence. That's on that last mm-hmm. one. But it's just sort of odd to quote the song that would be. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Kind of unusual. 
It does seem that that is kind of the song that they are singing, that wailing that's going on. And whether or not they're crying out silence or if that's the Lord silencing them. I would seem to guess that it would be the people crying out silence again, since they were the ones back in chapter 6 crying that out. But yeah, it's just an interesting note here of, you know, quoting the songs that they are singing. We would have been giving thanks to the Lord for this great harvest is now. Dead bodies everywhere. Silence. Got another hand over here, Bear. I just got kind of confused. Is he speaking mm-hmm. to Judah or Israel? or? So he's still speaking to the people of Israel here. Or he's, well, he's speaking to Amos through this vision. Remember the basket of summer fruit. So Amos is seeing this vision. And so the Lord is saying to Amos, the end has come upon my people, Israel. And so he's preaching it through Amos, but it's in fact, in fact, to the people of Israel here. Does that answer your question? At the very beginning of the book. So here he was, so there were the, let's see, there were the eight oracles at the beginning. So the first six were to the different pagan nations. You had Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites, Moab, and all of them. And so he's speaking to all of them of all these cursings. He's going to send fire upon them. And then he does move to Judah briefly. But that was the seventh oracle. And so, again, the people of Israel are kind of excited of, you know, they have this feud with Judah versus Israel here. And so, like, yeah, you know, you get them, Lord. And then he turns it on, on the people of Israel. And so he's spending the whole rest of this book speaking against his chosen people, Israel. Yeah. Because they're the ones that have received the covenant. He has called them to repentance time and time again, and they have not returned to the Lord like he had commanded them to. All right, so in verses 4 through 6, I just love the title that the commentator, Dr. Lessing, has for this section. He calls it the Hucksters and Hypocrites on Holy Days. So the peddlers and the hypocrites on holy days here. So hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances. And so the new moon festival, the Sabbath, these great festivals, they're just wanting them to be over with. That way they can get back to selling, oppressing the poor through their greed and everything. So complete denial of the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. We can care less about this Sabbath. Let's just get back to peddling all these poor people to fill our pockets. So that's what they're, he's, hear this, you who trample the needy. So he's speaking against them. So they're dealing deceitfully. They're making the ephah small so they're not using just weights and just measures. They're fudging the numbers. They're fudging the weights in order to further their own greed and their own profit from it. He continues in verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So they've oppressed the poor to such a great extent 
that even the poor have to sell themselves for silver. They have nothing left. They can't sell anything else to get food. And so they put themselves up for sale. And the same ones that have oppressed them are the ones buying them for silver and the needy just even for a pair of sandals and all the chaff of the wheat. So that's a proclamation against those who are greedy. Any questions on that? Pretty straightforward. He's kind of been speaking against them all throughout this book. So nothing too new there. Verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And so what is that pride of Jacob? Blessing in his commentary kind of gives three different options or different possibilities. The first is that is the Lord himself is the pride. That is him, that is his pride, that is who he is. Second, it could refer to Israel's inheritance, that is the promised land. So that's their pride, you know, the pride of Jacob, their pride and joy, that promised land from the Lord. Or third, it could be just their attitude of pride that they've had all along. Of nothing will befall us, we're great, we're doing just fine. You know, we've got all this great military might. And so it's their own pride there. So, I mean, there's some debate, and even Lessing doesn't really come to a clear conclusion, but he thinks it may be referring to the Lord himself. So previously, the Lord had sworn by himself, showing the certainty of this destruction, this judgment that was to come. And so the Lord then swearing again, kind of by himself, by the pride of Jacob, that he will never forget any of their deeds, which is the sins of them being retained. So he's not going to forget them. He's not going to forgive them, not because they've continued in impenitence, So unlike us, where the Lord does not remember our faults, the Lord here is saying, I'll never forget any of their deeds. They'll be retained. I will remember them, and you will be judged for that accordingly. And then verses 8 through 10 is another shorter section or subsection here. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. So remember all the way back in verse or chapter one, verse one, that was this was taking place two years before the earthquake. And we know from other places in scripture we can have a pretty certain date of that. So he's kind of calling back this same type of imagery here of shall not the land tremble from an earthquake on this account of their wickedness. And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And we'll get that imagery pop up a few other times later on in chapter 9. But rising and being tossed about, just kind of the same idea of the earth and all of creation just going up in an uproar and being tossed about to and fro there. Creation unraveling. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth 
on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So here we'll see at the end of chapter nine, we'll hit on it more, but think back to Christ's crucifixion itself, the darkness on the land in the middle of the day. Turn your feast into mourning. It was the time of the Passover, time of the remembrance of this, into a time of mourning, your songs into lamentation. Bring sackcloth on every waist, baldness on every head. And so baldness on every head is bad in itself, but rather be the image of being shaved for the time of mourning. They would shave their head for that. So he's saying he would bring baldness on every head. I mean, that's this great time of mourning. And so then they would have to shave their head for that. We'll make it like the mourning for an only son. So we saw that with the widow's son was a couple weeks ago. Pastor preached on that, of the funeral being processed. And it was her only son still alive there. And it was his death. So the great mourning and wailing there, the death meeting the life of Christ, you know, in the funeral parade, the parade of Christ and his disciples meeting head on. But even the mourning for an only son, the son of God himself. So the great mourning of that. Again, we'll see this at the end of chapter 9, but keep this same, these images in your head here. And the end of it like a bitter day. So we see that in Ruth. Do you remember whenever Naomi has the death of her sons and she has no one left? She's saying, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. That's a word for bitter. And so just call me bitter. Everything is terrible. Just call me bitter for what the affliction that's come upon me. So the end of it will be a Mara day here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. You recall that he had already sent famine on the land. He had like all those plagues that he was speaking of. And after each one of those, he said, but you did not return to me. So he's already sent a famine. He's already sent drought. He sent all these plagues against them. They haven't returned to him. And so now it will be another famine, but not of bread, but of hearing the words of God. So there, there will be that silence. There will be no more hearing his word, his preaching, his prophecy. There will be hungering and thirsting for it. But there will be nothing. There will be silence. So what a wonderful gift for us that we don't have that silence. That we don't have to hunger and thirst for something that's not there. But rather that the Lord is here. He is present. He is giving us his word each week, each time we read his scriptures. We come to his house and he's there giving to us his word bountifully that we don't have to hunger and thirst and have a famine of this. Rather, he's overflowing with these gifts for us. That is not the case for the people of Israel that are turning away from the Lord. There will be a famine. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. 
So in your study note at the bottom on the left column for the note on 811, Luther writes about this passage, For when the word has been taken away, what else remains but the most terrible darkness of human reason, which wants to be our mistress, and which can teach nothing else than the doctrine of the demons? There is no light except through faith in the word. So here, instead of being fed and nourished and have their paths lighted by the word of God, they're instead wandering about. They're wandering their desperate but futile search for divine guidance. The study note makes a remark of that. Recall, all, especially in, was it chapter 7, I think, could be wrong. But the Lord is saying, seek me and live. He's saying, seek me, come to me that you may live. But they don't. So here they will seek. They will be seeking around in the darkness there, but it will all be for nothing. They will not find the Lord and his words. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Most like, most notably here, the spiritual thirst. I mean, obviously there's physical thirst that the Lord prophesies of in chapter 7 with those plagues. But here I think Amos, or the Lord, through the words of Amos here, is really speaking of that spiritual thirst. So they're fainting for that thirst, which they have not been nourished by it. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So that guilt of Samaria is kind of an odd thing. And so Lessing in his commentary points out that could actually be, it's the Hebrew there is Ashima, which was an Aramean deity, which was worshipped by a group of people kind of in this area. And so that's the word for guilt there. And so those who swear by this false deity, this false deity of Samaria, So that's maybe what Amos is getting at here. They shall fall and never rise again. So the falling of this nation, the nation of Israel, and they won't rise again. Remember a couple chapters ago with the virgin who fell and was lying there on the road, no one to raise her up. The same imagery here. They will never rise again. Again, really cheerful preaching by Amos. In Lessing, at the end of his book, he gives an excursus on preaching in the style of Amos. It's just kind of fun to think about preaching and how to use some of these same ideas. But he's not really concerned, again, about making people happy. He's proclaiming the truth that the Lord told him to preach. Would the people of Israel rather him say what they needed to hear or what they wanted to hear? The Lord hears called them out, called them to repentance through the words of these prophets. They don't like to hear it, but that some of them may have turned in repentance in hearing harsh words from the mouths of prophets. Likewise, we don't like to be confronted with those things that we don't like to hear, but rather, would we rather be told what we should and should not do and be corrected as opposed to ending up like the people of Israel here and leading 
leading the way into such a wicked path that there is just destruction and judgment for them. Soon, though, he's not going to earn any brownie points and popularity contest. He is proclaiming what needs to be proclaimed, and he's still not done yet. There's still one chapter left to go. It'll end a little bit on a bright side, though, so don't worry. There's something to look forward to, but anything before we move on to chapter 9. Um, related to Liz's question earlier about mm-hmm. uh, Judah and Israel, mm-hmm. can, can you help me out? I'm just forgetting. How did Judah and Israel split? I know that David was initially made king of Judah mm-hmm. um, and then eventually became king of both, right? And they were yeah. united, but... My history is a little fuzzy on all that, especially the kingdoms in the Old Testament, just all the splitting and everything. We haven't hit any of that in the seminary yet, so I haven't done too much of a deep dive on that. Barry, do you have any on that? I was going to offer it. You know, the, it was a united kingdom under mm-hmm. King David, of course. Yeah. Uh, King Saul being first, King David was second. Then mm-hmm. his son, King David's son, Solomon, it was still united. Mm-hmm. Then that's where the split occurred. They yeah. couldn't agree on the king to follow Solomon, and the, mm-hmm. the uh, ten right. tribes went to the north, and they called that Israel from mm-hmm. then on. And then the southern kingdom was referred to as Judah. Mm-hmm. And Rehoboam, I think, was the king then of, of the south. So yeah. that's, that's when that, and starting the line of the kings, and you can read about all that in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. So. Oh, yeah, all the such and such lived for this long and ruled this long, and then this person that you can't pronounce. And, right. You know. I did have a comment. My, mm-hmm. I did have a comment myself, and it has mm-hmm. to do with the uh, verse that talks about they shall run to seek and fro to seek the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, reminds me of uh, a survey or at least a commentary um, on life in a family when. A teenager grows and be, grows and moves out of the house. There's mm-hmm. often a, the comment that I wish my parents had had more guidance for me, had given me more direction. Mm-hmm. So I think inherent in our human nature is uh, what are the rules? I I want a structure, and here, mm-hmm. you know, and we know parents' job representing the Lord in the family setting are, are to bring the children up in the knowledge, understanding, and fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. When that's absent, then there's this, and the word of the Lord is not there. Mm-hmm. It's it's to and fro, and there is disorder. So it, it it speaks to me of, I think, human nature. God gave human nature uh, a desire and a want to know what's right mm-hmm. and to follow it. Uh, and parents, you didn't give me that enough is, is what some of these mm-hmm. uh, worldly... Uh, uh, graduates of teenage um, have under have, have uh, become so anyway yeah I mean while they're in the moment they may not like that guidance the strict rules and everything just like the people of Israel wouldn't like all these laws that they had to follow from the Lord but I mean as you grow up you realize the wisdom of your parents and then as Israel's facing this judgment don't they realize the wisdom of this all along but They've turned away. Yeah. My question is, 
in many places in the Bible, it'll speak about the remnant will be left. And here you don't see that at all. There's no remnant at all left of the people. Wait until chapter 9. We'll get to that. I mean, there is kind of this total destruction, though, that the Lord has been speaking of. But in chapter 9, we'll get a tiny little remnant promise. And that's through whom we have Christ there. So, again, it does get a little better in chapter 9. It, as a good Lutheran, Amos ends a little bit on the gospel here, and the end times, the promise thereof. So, we'll get to that remnant here in a second. Are there any other questions before we get to that? All right, 9 verse 1. This is the fifth vision. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. So again, not quite to the remnant yet. (laughs) Get just total destruction of them. At the beginning there, we get the vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. So again, no one has seen the Lord and has lived. But this is obviously the second person of the Trinity here in that form, standing beside the altar. So he's saying to strike the capitals and shatter them on the heads and then any who are left kill with the sword. So just this total destruction that will come to them. Verse 2, If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So there's going to be no escaping, is what he is saying here. So if they dig all the way down to Sheol, all the way down there, he can still reach there. He'll use his hand there, bring him back up from that. If they climb all the way even up to heaven, From there, he can still reach. He'll bring them back down. You can't escape this judgment that is coming, is what he's saying. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. So your study note on 9 verse 3 makes a note that it's a sea monster with a deadly bite stands ready to serve as God's servant of destruction. So here, because they are fleeing to the bottoms, the bottom of the sea, so this type of sea serpent there, this imagery of that, he will command the serpent, and it will bite them. So you get on a whole rabbit trail about sea monsters and all that if you want to. You can do more reading on it. They will command the serpent and it will bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So here we have the eyes of the Lord upon his people, but not in a good way, not in a pleasant way. Rather, pretty much he has his eyes on the target. They're not going to escape his sight. He will fix his eyes upon them, not for evil, or for evil and not for good. So that's, Lessing puts a division here and says that's the end of that vision. And then we move kind of into a 
mini-sermon about this vision, whether or not you want to add that division, it's good either way. But verse 5, the Lord God of hosts, that is the God of these armies, these heavenly armies, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. Referring back to chapter 8, verse 8 there. So the Lord is the Lord of these armies, the Lord of hosts, and even just touching the earth, it'll melt. So he is the one giving these oracles of destruction here. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. This is the Lord who is all-powerful, who has built up these upper chambers in the heavens, built these vaults. That is who is speaking here. And he speaks to the people of Israel in verse 7. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So here in your study note, the Cushites are the descendants of Ham, so the brothers of like the accursed Canaanites here. So you, are you not like them, those wicked people, O people of Israel, declaring the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? So again, recalling the great salvific event that the Lord has done this. Have I not done this for the people of Israel? And the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. So again, his eyes are upon them. But here he adds the sinful kingdom, the wicked kingdom of Israel. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. And here's the remnant, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So here we get that first promise of a faithful remnant here. So even though the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and he will destroy it nearly utterly, there will still be a faithful remnant, no matter how small it may be, declares the Lord. He continues with this promise of the remnant in verse 9 here. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. So it's kind of an odd imagery here. But there's two ways to kind of think of this. It's one, so you have these pebbles and all this stuff in the sieve. So you shake it, and then all the small sediment goes out and falls. But there's still the pebbles left in the sieve. So whether or not the faithful remnant are the pebbles left in the sieve, or the faithful remnant are the ones that have gone through the sieve and kind of escaped the Lord's judgment. You can kind of take it either way. I tend to think that the pebbles are actually the faithful remnant because we have that language of no pebble shall fall to the earth. So that language of falling we've seen for destruction of people, kind of the nations falling in judgment there. So no pebble shall fall to the earth. It's kind of that they would be saved from it. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, 
who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Haven't we seen that before in Amos? Don't we see that today even? Nation of Israel, nations throughout the world, our own nation, disaster shall not overtake us. We've got great military might. We've got these great strongholds. We'll be fine. We can go continue on sinning. We've been protected. We're the greatest nation the world has ever known. We'll be fine. And we say boastfully, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. But who is the one that has the ultimate authority that can simply touch the earth and it melts away? you think any kind of military might or anything like that can escape his destruction and his judgment upon a wicked people? So learn from the people of Israel here. Repent as a nation. Don't be boastful and think that no destruction can come upon us. So we see this in the destruction of the people of Israel. We got the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrians. Saw that in 500s, 600s in that area. But ultimately, at the end, the total destruction of the earth on Judgment Day, we see that. They're saying disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Any thoughts on that? Again, really a roller coaster of emotions here. It's told destruction, even the sword. If anyone survives, you'll slay them. But there will be a faithful remnant. All the sinners will die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. So even there, we may even see a bit of a chiasm. Again, we have that structure where it's kind of like an X. And so you have two things and it kind of focuses in on a center and a key point. So we may even have Lord first beginning chapter 9 with destroying them with the sword. But then we get the promise of this faithful remnant, but all the sinners will die by the sword. And so he returns back to that same point, but kind of putting your focus on that small little faithful remnant. Just these couple of verses here of those that shall escape the judgment. So then we get into the final passage the final section of our text. And this really gets into the restoration of Israel here and the great gospel that is contained here. But any thoughts, questions on any of the fun judgment language so far? Nothing? All right, so in verse 11... In that day. So all previously in this book we've had in that day or on that day or something to that effect has been the day of judgment that the Lord is going to send upon the people. But here we get a shift of in that day is rather the day of restoration. The day of the creation of the new earth. All of these things, this eschatological view of in that day and not this day of destruction. So here we get a turn. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. So here we get the birth of a new nation, a new world. This whole book previously, or up to this point, has been the destruction of this world, 
all these pagan nations, Judah, Israel, total, total destruction, death by the sword, death by fire. But here is the birth of a new nation. He will raise up out of the ashes, out of those that could not be raised up because they were all struck down. He will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. So language for booth is that of a tent or a tabernacle here. So remember in John 1, the Lord who has dwelt among us, he has tabernacled among us. So he will raise up this tent, this tabernacle of David and that which has fallen. So he will raise up Christ, bring Christ into this fallen world for this new creation and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So here we're not speaking of an earthly restoration, but rather this new creation, this new temple. Remember the Lord speaking of, you know, this temple is going to be destroyed, but destroy this temple, my body, and it will be raised in three days. So he's speaking of this new heavenly temple. So repair its breaches and raise up its ruins. Rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So this restoration now is not going to just be for the people of Israel, but rather for all the nations, all those who are called by my name. So the faithful throughout the nations, all these Gentile nations as well. He will raise them up. They may possess the remnant, the inheritance of Edom. And this declares the Lord, who does this? So it's the Lord who is doing this. He will raise them up and he will give over this land to possess. And he is the one who is calling them by his name. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So here, not going to get into all the details that lesson brings forth. Again, it's not an agricultural lesson, but basically what he's getting at here is there's kind of a, an acceleration of the time of planting and harvesting. And so normally as you would you know, plant in the fall and harvest in the spring, and the harvesters are almost overtaking those who are planting, there's an endless supply, an endless reaping that is going on. So this great bounty, this great bountiful harvest. Verse 9, we get that, or nine, chapter 9, 13, the study note, for overtake, the promised restoration will be so abundant that there will be no breaks in the plowing, seeding, reaping work cycle. So it's kind of a double production of what's going on. And so we see this start to be fulfilled, again, when the Lord enters the scene, when Christ takes on flesh, and what's his first miracle that he performs? At the wedding of Cana, with the wine. He's turning water into wine here. And so the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And so we get this start of this new creation going on. 
for the Lord has entered creation and is making all things new here. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. So now they've been restored to the status of my people. Before they had been called my people, but then you recall throughout Amos, they kind of get demoted to just a clan. The same distinction, the same title for the other pagan nations are just these clans. But here in this restoration, they have the restoration of the title of my people. They've been restored to that title. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So here we get a lot to unpack. First, the language of planting. So as the Lord had planted in the Garden of Eden at creation, so he will plant his people on their land, this new promised land. Not a land on this earth, not an earthly nation, but rather the new heavens, the new earth, which they will never again be uprooted. So again, non-earthly nation, nothing like that. He's speaking of this new land that they will be planted on, never again to be uprooted. Because what happened at the Garden of Eden, when the Lord planted the garden there, planted man there, they were uprooted by sin, cast out of the garden. It was from that sin that they were, they had to leave that land and were plucked out of it. But here he will plant them in a land where they will never again be uprooted, where there won't be sin that will cause them to be thrown out of this land. They can't do anything to merit themselves getting it or being thrown out for that. There will be no sin, no reason for being uprooted out of that land. So not the word, the word used here is not the word general for land that we've seen, where it's Eretz, just kind of a generic land, generic people or nation, generic in that way. Here it's the word Adama. Again, Adam, Adam. He was, Adam was made from Adama. He was taken from the ground, fashioned from the ground. And so here he will plant them in on their land, that new Adama, that new creation here of which he formed creation originally. He's now planting them in this new land, the land that I have given them. Nothing they're doing, no military strength or military might of conquering these nations, overtaking Gaza or anything like that, but rather I have given them this land. It is theirs. They will not be uprooted from that. So here we see the ultimate fulfillment in Christ who is the embodiment of Israel. Israel reduced to one. So we see this parallelism with Christ, who, remember, flees first to Egypt to escape Herod, and then flees back from Egypt to his own land when he was a baby. So the exodus from Egypt, we get him 
being tempted in the wilderness as the people of Israel were tempted. We get the transfiguration. We recall that, I can't remember if it's in Luke's account, I think it may be, where he's saying they are speaking, he is speaking of his exodus. So we get that specific language of exodus, his exodus here. We have the cross back in chapter 8 with the earthquakes, all this darkness that will come upon the land of Israel now comes upon Christ himself, Christ on the cross. Darkness being separated from the Father, all that judgment, all that destruction reduced to one. But from that one, he will rise, he will be raised up, and then bring us into that new creation. So as Israel was restored, so Christ, as he was crucified and died, was restored, he was raised to new life, and now brings us into that inheritance of that new land. So that's a great promise and a great hope that we have through here. So the same Lord who had roared at the beginning, remember the roaring of the lion, is now the same one who is saying, I will plant you in this land, this promised land. You will be safe. You will be guarded. Nothing to uproot you anymore. So what a great comfort that is for us here. So that concludes our study of Amos are there any thoughts, questions? Again, there's been a lot going on in Amos. So the, um, their land that they'll be planted on, it will be not, not an earthly kingdom, but new, the new heaven and the new earth. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering then, how, um, how do we interpret uh, earlier there, in verse 14 where he says and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them where it's there's mm-hmm. an action that they're taking then they, they shall plant vineyards and mm-hmm. make gardens and, and so on so there there's rebuilding and planting and and making on the part of the people mm-hmm. how does that how do we interpret that I mean even within the new heavens and the new earth there is going to be this new creation this rebuilding of that which is old. You know, the total destruction of the earth, this rebuilding there. And so, I mean, there could be some earthly element here. I don't want to spend too much or go too far on a tangent there with that. I mean, I think, again, he's not speaking of any kind of earthly kind of reign or restoration because then nothing is ever... You can't have a certainty of you'll never again be uprooted here on this earth. In a sinful, fallen creation, there's destruction all around. You know what I mean? And so this promise of they won't be uprooted and that the Lord will plant them on that land. So I think is Kind of a now and not yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The now, not yet. Absolutely. So even though we have these great promises awaiting us. There's still that notion that we are in this fallen world, and we're waiting for that day to come. Again, it's kind of hard to, I mean, especially everything that's going on overseas right now, it's kind of hard not to focus on that and think, well, this is the restoration, or you know what I mean? Get up on all that stuff here. But 
Here the Lord is very much focusing on this eschatological notion here of this raising up of the booth of David that's fallen. So who is that booth, that seed of David, but Christ himself? So he'll raise him up, plant them on this nation, that they may not be uprooted from it there. Does that kind of answer your question? I think so. I was just wondering, is there any sense in which um, rebuilding the city would be like, could be seen as returning to God's word? Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting reflection of kind of rebuild. Yeah. The cities that had been built on all this greed and oppression of the poor here. I think it's a worthy reflection and a worthy connection to make, whether or not that's what he's going for. I think he's here speaking more literally of this new city, but yet return. Yeah, but even then, there comes the destruction again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, and so, yeah. yeah, that now, not yet. They will be returning to that land, but it's not a forever land. Right. They must still keep their eye on the Lord and repent and return to Him when needed. Absolutely. So Amos is a fun study. It's my first time going through it. I mean, I've read through it before, but not doing a deep dive. And so I hope it was worthy of kind of going through, doing a little more deep dive. Even though Pastor did it, what, seven years ago, something like that. Never hurts to go back over it. We've still got a couple minutes. We'll just briefly introduce Obadiah here. Kind of do the introductory materials on that first page. So, of course, the author, Obadiah, no surprise there. We want to read through Luther's section, a little excerpt here on Obadiah. Obadiah does not specify the time when he lived. However, his prophecy applies to the time of the Babylonian captivity, for he comforts the people of Judah that they shall return to Zion. His prophecy is directed especially against Edom, or descendants of Esau, which bore a special and everlasting hatred against the people of Israel and Judah, as usually happens when friends turn against each other, especially when brothers fall into hatred and hostility against each other. Such hostility knows no measure. So here the Edomites hated the Jewish people beyond all measure and had no greater joy than to see the captivity of the Jews, boasting and mocking them in their misery and wretchedness. Almost all the prophets denounced the Edomites because of their hateful wickedness. Even Psalm 137 complains of them and says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Raise it, raise it, down to its foundations. This hurts beyond measure when men mock and laugh at those who are wretched and troubled, defying them and boasting against them. It constitutes a great and strong assault upon their faith in God and a powerful incentive to despair and unbelief. So he continues on further from there. And so as the people of Israel are in this Babylonian captivity, here in Obadiah we'll see the Lord speaking against the Edomites who have oppressed them and have enjoyed seeing you know, the people of Israel suffer. And so here he is going to be given, he is going to be given a vision from the Lord concerning Edom here. 
into their great fall and their great destruction. So be words of comfort for a nation that is under captivity. And so he's giving this great comfort to them when they need it the most here. And so we'll get into that next week. Again, since it's only 21 verses, we'll probably be getting through it pretty quick next week. And then we'll be skipping Jonah and then moving on to Micah. And we'll go from there. And Micah's like six chapters or so, six, seven, something like that. So we'll be in that for a few weeks, and then we'll move on from there. But any other last questions? Mm-hmm. Starting with blessed Lord. Last sentence in Amos. Uh, under the study Bible. Yes. Oh. Very last one starts bless starts oh, blessed yeah. Lord. Yeah. Or I can read it if you want me. To. I can go ahead and end that with good. the prayer, and that'd be a good place to end here. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you.